VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. This week... What we know is certainly sufficient for impeachment if he was still in the White House, and it may very well be indictable. Jonathan Bernstein on the new House January 6th committee revelations and the fallout from the Supreme Court overturning Roe. And later, Juliana Goldman on what Mississippi has to teach us about the future of abortion politics. First to the markets, seemingly a little at sea this week and generally getting warier of weaker economic data. This, though, as Fed officials continue to talk up rate increases and Chair Jay Powell talks about finding price stability in the new economy. We're with Jared Dillian of The Daily Dirt Nap and Bloomberg Opinion. Hedge fund manager Michael Burry, famous obviously for getting the big short right as the great financial crisis was unfolding, sent a tweet out this week suggesting the Fed may actually pause or even reverse hikes because deflationary impulses are brewing in certain areas of the economy. We have seen a couple of people float this idea in recent weeks. Is he right? Uh, He is right. And what he was referring to in particular was this phenomenon where retailers are building inventories to record levels. Uh, and inevitably, if you're a retailer and your inventories are stuffed, then at some point you're going to have to discount. You're going to have to lower prices in order to get rid of those inventories. And that is deflationary. I mean, it's inherently deflationary. And the inventories piece is just one piece of the puzzle. We're really getting a deflationary impulse throughout the economy. You're seeing in a lot of places like the manufacturing surveys, uh, the regional manufacturing surveys, that, that they're just, you know, dropping like wet socks on a chicken, as one of my friends used to say. So, <laughs> Well, this is the thing. And, I was, you know, I was moderating a panel at Credit Suisse this week with four different firms represented, and the figures 70% and 80% were both mentioned in relation to the prospect of recession. So it seems like there are more and more people turning a bit negative on the economy. Do we have to have the NBER call it before we really know or before the Fed even reacts? Well, we we might actually be in recession already. I mean, that's well, you know, the NBER uses a, a number of factors to calculate a recession, and it's possible that as months go by that you'll see some of the data that we're currently experiencing, you'll see that get revised lower. So it's possible that we're already in a recession, and then six months from now, the NBER say, well, yes, we were actually in recession back in June. So I think it's totally possible. So is the Fed then waiting for more data to come in before it does something? And can it continue to hike interest rates if indeed there is a high possibility that we are in a recession? Well, I think I think the one data point that's going to get the Fed to stop hiking is the labor market. And really because of optics and because of the politics around unemployment, if unemployment were to go up significantly, say the unemployment rate goes to 5 5.5% or 6%, 
then you know that's a, that's a severely lagging indicator. But then it would be absolutely clear that we're in recession. Mm-hmm. The problem with the Fed doing that is that the problem doesn't really anticipate uh, these moves in the economy. It really reacts to them after the fact. So it, yes, it's probably true that the Fed should stop hiking now, but they won't actually probably for three to six more months. Yeah, and I mean that's probably what we're seeing in the stock market right now because it does seem a little at sea. You no, know? I mean we've had multiple days of barely any moves, but then sort of one random two percent drop on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean I'm actually I'm, I'm reasonably bullish on stocks. Um, you know, I think I think sentiment is pretty terrible here. Uh, I think sentiment is bombed out, and I'm actually expecting a rally. Really, the worse the data is, the better it is for the stock market, because that builds more of a case for the Fed to pause rate hikes. Yeah. At the same time, the Fed can't really pause rate hikes until we see it in inflation expectations, right? I mean, it's actually targeting inflation expectations right now, which it said it is. But how do we even try to predict what the impact of that will be on stock and bond markets? Well, the interesting thing is, is we're getting a little bit of early evidence that inflation expectations are coming down. We got that the other day with the University of Michigan mm-hmm. survey, uh, that inflation expectations on a one-year basis and a five- to ten-year basis had come down just a little bit. So, you know, even though they've, they haven't really actually hiked interest rates a lot, they've done sort of this verbal tightening over the last six to nine months. And it has been having an effect. It's been having a huge effect. So I'm going to quote from one of your pieces. You say, as laughable as it may seem, there may still actually be a transitory element to current inflation. That was a function of quantitative easing, government spending and pandemic hoarding. You're really buying into this idea that we could see inflation coming down pretty precipitously soon. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very confident that the 8.6% print we got on CPI, I think that's going to be the highest. I think the next print is going to be lower. Uh, the economy has slowed quite a bit since that last CPI print. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very possible that by the end of the year, we could have inflation somewhere around 5% or 6%. Jared, do we have to be confident in this Federal Reserve before we make a calculation on the economy, though? I mean, I ask that because I'm not sure that even this Federal Reserve is confident in itself on this particular cycle. Well, I mean, you know, Jerome Powell said that he isn't really, you know, he isn't really sure what causes inflation, or I forget his exact quote, uh, but nobody really is. I mean, it's really a psychological phenomenon. And, um, you know, that's really the purpose of the rate hikes is to crush the inflationary psychology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's doing actually a, a pretty good job. And someone pointed out recently that, you know, in previous inflationary episodes, you had to raise Fed funds above the rate of inflation in order to get inflation down, which would mean we would have to take, you know, Fed funds up to 9%. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't even think that's necessary. I mean, I think you can raise rates to 3%, and you're going to be able to take this down because of this transitory element. You know, everybody made fun of the Fed calling it transitory and then capitulating. But I think it may, in fact, be transitory because of these one-time factors. Yeah, and obviously we're seeing commodity prices coming down, which I'm not sure that many people would have predicted even recently. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the CRB commodity index is down about 10% from the highs, and it happened pretty quick. And I expect you're going to get a little bit more downside there. Timing the markets. You wrote a column about it. Obviously, we're told time and again, you know, investing 101, don't try to time the market. It's going to be financial Armageddon. Explain your thesis, Jared. Yeah, I do. You know, look, timing the market is is uh, for 99% of the people, you should never do it. It's really hard. Uh, you're going to make your returns worse. Uh, and the reason that's true for most people is because, you know, because of human psychology, because 
people mm-hmm. are hardwired to be bad investors because when the market goes up, they get excited, they buy more. When the market goes down, they get discouraged and they sell. Uh, and it's you know that's that's the way people are wired. So, but if you can sort of do that counter cyclically, if you can say, or if you can kind of step back and get some perspective and examine your emotions and say, look, like I'm you know long the market and it's going up and I feel really good and I feel very happy about my investments, that is actually the time you want to cut back exposure. You don't have to sell everything, but if you just reduced your exposure by about 10%, and then you know a couple of years later when the market is going down and you feel really terrible about your investments and you want to liquidate everything, that's actually the time to increase exposure. So just by doing these minor tweaks in your asset allocation, based on sentiment, that's actually a way to outperform the market by a little bit over time. Yeah. So, it sounds incredibly you know, obvious when you put it like that, and it sounds quite attractive. In fact, why not do that? You get a few extra percentage points for yourself. At the same time, timing the market and timing sentiment has to be very difficult, or everybody would be doing it all of the time, no? <laughs> well, everybody does do it all the time. I mean, this isn't this isn't like a license to day trade. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not it's not a license for active trading. I mean, in the piece I talked about, you know, this is something, the this is something you might do two or three times in your investing career. Yeah. Uh, you know, like an obvious example would have been, you know, two thousand in the top of the dot com bubble. Another obvious example would have been two thousand nine when stocks bottomed after the financial crisis. Um, but these are big, big sentiment turning points, and you don't even have to like catch the top or catch the bottom as long as you're in the neighborhood. And these are tiny adjustments in asset allocation. Not so, saying you have to go all out of the market or all in. As Bart says, are we there yet? Then, if you compare sentiment now to how bad it got in 2009, I mean, sentiment is bad now. Um, and but I don't think we're I don't think we're really close to where we were in 2009. I think it could be a turning point, but I don't think it could be one of those generational turning points where you want to change your asset allocation. Right. And do you think one is coming? This particular cycle seems so difficult to call because it's not just one thing. It's not just one asset class that seems to be bubblicious. I mean, obviously crypto was, and there are parts of the market that are, but. There are so many factors that are coming together now, from the Ukraine war to zero COVID in China to so many other things. Is it going to be even possible to time sentiment this time? No, I think it's possible, and I think you'll know when it happens. Um, you know, I mean, I think a good analog for what's going on today is actually 1974. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's similar because you had inflation going up, and the Fed was kind of trapped, and they had to hike rates, and um, it, it, it really like the market sort of got into this mode where, you know, it was like, you know, just it, it was trapped by inflation, basically. So it's, I think it's similar to that. And in 1974, the market was down 46 or 48 percent. I can't remember. Well, so just quoting from a Bloomberg story, stock dip buyers across the ETF world have vanished this year because they've tried three times. They've seen their account balances ravaged three times in 2022. So the number of 5 percent bounces that didn't endure is three. How do you then persuade somebody to try again a fourth time? Well, it's it, <laughs> that's the, that's the problem because really like what the the time to do it is when you really don't want to do it is when it feels absolutely the worst 
like when you're when really like you you want to do the opposite you want to want to just liquidate everything and go to cash that's actually the time to increase exposure you know the funny thing is is that i've been doing this for 23 years so i was around for 2000 and i was around for 2009 and uh you know i i successfully took down exposure in 2000 but in 2009 i actually i was a victim of my own emotions like mm. i actually didn't increase exposure because I was so scared because, you know, Citigroup was trading at 99 cents and B of A was trading at three bucks. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I got, I got sucked into the the vortex and I thought, well, like the world is actually coming to an end and it didn't, it never does. Well, it's easier to imagine something going to zero when it's $3 than going to zero when it's $300, right? Weirdly, yeah. I mean, psychologically it, it shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah. So, you know, you talk about when you're feeling your worst about your portfolio. How risky is acceptable then? Are you just talking equities here? Because some might take your advice and say, oh, well, I'll buy a bunch of crypto then. Oh, no, we're just talking <laughs> equities. This is just this is just a stock market. Yeah. I mean, having having said that, you know, I've invested in crypto a little bit. I have some right now. And I'd, I'd be a much better buyer here than six months ago, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's lower. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I noticed, and I'm not sure if this should give us pause, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York launched a corporate bond market distress index. So it's supposed to you know, track the health of $8 trillion of US corporate bonds as financial conditions tighten. Should we be concerned that the Fed feels like it needs to have this new index? You know, actually, I don't think it's a terrible thing. You know, it's interesting because the last credit cycle that we had in 2020 only lasted about four days. I mean, the pandemic happened, the bond market crashed, and then the Fed announced this liquidity facility. They started buying corporate bonds. So you really only had a credit cycle that lasted for four days. Now the corporate bond market is actually, I don't want to say it's distressed, but it's not good. Like there's there's a lot of pain out there in the high yield and uh, investment grade. So uh, I think it's interesting. The timing on that is pretty interesting. Mm. How do you best gauge sentiment if you're an amateur? Really, the best way to do it is to just pay attention to everything around you. Pay attention to every magazine cover. Pay attention to newspapers. Pay attention to TV shows, your neighbors, who you talk to. Listen to how they feel about the markets. You know, if you if you start getting this consensus around all these sources of information that things are really good or really bad, then it's probably time to go the other way. What are you doing right now? Uh, what am I doing right now? In not not much of not much of anything actually. Not so much you're of not taking your own advice. <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm not 100 percent convinced we're at a bottom. Jared Dillion of the Daily Dirt Nap and Bloomberg Opinion. We're back with David Fickling on global hunger, its causes and potential alleviating factors. We know that there are wheat mountains backed up in ports because of Russia's war in Ukraine. Other factors, however, are contributing to this global intense hunger crisis, as David Fickling explains. How bad is it right now in terms of food insecurity in the world? I think we're approaching a quite unusual turn in the sort of history of global food security, to be honest. If you look back at the long history of this, you know, one of the crucial things that's helped keep the world fed over the past 50 years while the world population has doubled 
is actually trade. People talk a lot about the growth of sort of chemical fertilizers and, and farm machinery, which have both been very important in the 20th century in keeping the world fed. But trade is a really important part of that because, of course, if you have drought and crop failures in your region, then there's no amount of fertilizer or farm machinery that will solve the fact that your crop just won't grow. So a really important thing that I think is underappreciated is that the cost of ocean freight in the 19th century dropped by about 70%. And so you suddenly have this global trade in grains. And about a quarter of all the calories we consume are now traded across borders. So it's very important that this is a global trade. But I think something that's underappreciated is that it's quite a concentrated trade. The world's bread baskets are rather few. There's probably about six of them. The, the U.S. Midwest, South America, sort of Argentina, Brazil, that area, areas of Western Europe and the Ukraine and the former Soviet Union and Russia. And I think most importantly, the plain between the Indus and the Ganges in northern India and Pakistan and eastern China between the Yangtze and the Yellow Rivers. Those six bread baskets are absolutely crucial to the world's growth of these relatively few number of crops that we depend on, wheat, rice, corn, soybeans. More than half of wheat and rice and corn are grown if you put those those areas together. Soybeans is closer to sort of 80 to 90 percent. Now, for most of the time, that's not too much of a problem because although there's just half a dozen of these bread baskets, if you get a drought in one region, it tends to pair with good rainfall in another region that leads to higher crop yields because essentially the rainfall has to go somewhere. It evaporates on one side of the ocean and it tends to drop on the other side of the ocean. And when we talk about things like El Nino and La Nina, that's essentially about rainfall ending up in different places. However, as the climate is changing, a lot of that is getting a lot less secure than it has been in the past. I think that's really putting pressure on some of the fairly sort of shaky system that we have there in place. As I say, just half a dozen bread baskets to to keep the world fed. We're seeing several weather events right now, even just in the United States alone. So weather has a lot to do with the fact that there's going to be a shortage. It's not just Russia's war in Ukraine. Absolutely. In normal times, you would look to the world's other big wheat producers. Now, one of the world's top three wheat producers may be slightly surprising, in fact, is is India. You don't think of India as a big wheat producer because it's not a big wheat exporter normally because it's almost all consumed at home for chapatis. And and, and, uh, certainly not now. Exactly. What we've seen in India over the past couple of months, we've seen this very extreme heat wave, and that has caused India to embargo exports of wheat. Places like the Middle East, they were very dependent on wheat from Ukraine. That's obviously been damaged by the war in Ukraine. The places they were hoping to get their wheat supplies from was India, but now India is not supplying that either. Obviously, you see these high prices in the US as well. So you really see how some relatively small changes, and especially if you throw geopolitics in the mix, as with the the war in Ukraine, suddenly what looked like a, a decent spread of food baskets can very quickly look rather short. You also point out in a recent piece, food-dependent nations can import nutrition, but they must have the foreign exchange to pay for it. And we know that because of the dollar's strength, that's in short supply in many of these countries. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, a weak currency becomes a problem for especially the poorest in the country, even if there is the availability of imported nutrition. I mean, another interesting example, you look at Brazil. Brazil recently, not a country that you really associate with a sort of open trade policy, but they've been drastically cutting the tariff rates essentially to zero for all food imports. The idea of that is, of course, that inflation is very high in Brazil and it is a problem for people in Brazil that they can't afford to eat well. That is a decent policy approach, but the problem is it's not nearly sufficient because if you look at the way the the real, the currency, has fallen in recent years, Brazil is a big food producer anyway, and it's probably not going to lead to any increase in food imports because Brazilians simply can't afford the market global price of food.
Now, David, how bad does this get in terms of people actually starving, people in places you might even associate famine and food insecurity with? I mean, the past few decades mostly have been an extremely successful period of bringing down rates of undernutrition, undernourishment. That progress continued, slowed down through the 2010s, but then just in 2019 and then particularly 2020 since, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, we've really started to lose ground on that. Now, part of that is essentially driven by the pandemic and driven by incomes. People don't have the money to spend on food that they used to have. But it's not just because of that. And I think particularly at the moment, we see all sorts of factors are leading to a much more insecure environment for food. Then you throw into the mix the war in Ukraine. Um, is a factor. Ukraine and, and Russia are both big food exporters for, for that matter. And there's wheat piled up at ports in Ukraine and Russia that just won't get out now. Absolutely, absolutely. And then even on top of that, then you can add some of these export embargoes. Obviously, you know, an interesting one was India's wheat embargo follows very rapidly on the heels of an export embargo in Indonesia for palm oil, which has actually now been revoked, but, mm. um, but went on for a while. Uh, India is one of the biggest importers of palm oil. India needs palm oil for basic nutrition for Indians. They lose that nutrition from Indonesia. They embargo their wheat exports elsewhere. And you see these knock-on effects everywhere. So there are all sorts of impacts like this. David Fickling there. And don't forget to get in touch. All thoughts and opinions very welcome. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. New and unexpected revelations from the House January 6th committee this week. And of course, we're several days now post the Roe v. Wade overturning by SCOTUS. We're with Jonathan Bernstein. So, Jonathan, what an intense week. We began with Roe and all of a sudden the week has become quite the eventful week with the extra January 6th hearing that we weren't anticipating as well and a lot of quote-unquote bombshells. I do want to ask you, though, what really did we learn that was usable from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson? Well, you know, there's different levels of who this is for, right? So, But I think just to begin with, the fact that Donald Trump, we now have established, knew that there were armed people that he then urged on to attack the Capitol, that's pretty big. Um, I don't think we had had any kind of evidence before this that Trump knew that some of the crowd was armed. Not only is it you know, reckless of him, not only does it show that, you know, it shows that he thought of them as attacking the Capitol rather than just that they were going to peacefully march over there and hold a demonstration. So that's pretty big, big, big news. Is that a bit of a jump, though? I mean, if you were a prosecutor thinking about this, is there evidence that the former president knew or believed that these people would use their arms? I mean, you know, many people are armed in the streets in many states, more and more now these days. He said, they're not here to hurt me or to hurt me. I mean, we don't fully... Can you make the jump and say that we knew that he knew that they were going to Well, that's where I think I have to take a step back and talk about different audiences. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to tell you what the prosecutors need. But in terms of us as citizens, yeah, I think that that's, that's a pretty big deal that Trump knew that these people were armed, asked to remove the metal detectors so they could come and hear him talk, saying, oh, the, you know, they're not for, those weapons aren't for me. I think, yeah, that, that's a pretty big indication that he, at the very least, once there was trouble, once they attacked the cops and breached the Capitol, he had reason to believe that all kinds of things could happen. In fact, 
you know, as it turns out, we have a lot of evidence of weapons at the Capitol, not guns. But Trump didn't know that. Yeah. Well, the other thing, one of the other yeah. things that was, you know, a shocker was what apparently happened in the Beast, where the president <laughs> wanted to get to the Capitol and, and wasn't allowed. Explain to me how the, how the Secret Service is operating right now, because apparently the Secret Service told the sitting president of the United States that he couldn't go somewhere, prevented him from doing that, and are now saying that, no, that didn't happen. We're going to have to wait to see how everything shakes out in terms of, you know, who says what. It's not clear that the Secret Service is denying that he asked them to go to the Capitol. Um, There seems to be a denial of the story of exactly what happened in the car. But I think everybody agrees this wasn't the first evidence that he wanted to go to the Capitol and sort of lead the mob to the Capitol. What I would say is that it's nothing new for Secret Service to tell the presidents, no, you can't do that, sir. Mm. And we have a wonderful example of it back when George W. Bush was president on September 11th. He said, take me back to the White House right now. And the Secret Service said, no, sir, you're staying up on the plane and flying around in circles because it's not safe to go to Washington right now. Part of this is very much about Trump. And part of it is about the structure of the presidency in the first place, that, you know, the president can't get his way by ruling by edict, even with people who work in the White House, which is the closest he has to people who are directly below him. People say no to the president all the time. Yeah. So... I mean, the other thing about that is that at the time, the Secret Service didn't deny that they had tried to protect the president at the time, Bush, from getting into harm's way. But this time, there's something strange going on. Also, the fact that the vice president didn't want to get into the limousine. I mean, you know, obviously, there are any number of ways to interpret what happened that day. But isn't that problematic in itself? I think that there's no question that there's been a series of things about the Secret Service going back to at least the Obama presidency, maybe back you know before that, that really could use a proper investigation. And whether it had to do with the shift of the Secret Service, it used to be in Treasury, it's now in Homeland Security. Of course, there was no Homeland Security on September 11th. That's a new department that came out of that. Um, or maybe it's within the internal bureaucracy, internal culture of the agency itself that may really need some work. That's something that Congress certainly should be investigating sort of separately from what happened on January 6th. But, um, you know, it's also, I'm, I'm, I want to be very, very cautious about what we know and what we don't know and what we can know, because a lot of Secret Service stuff has to be, by its nature, not public. So, yeah. And that's partially know. the problem with what we heard the other day, too, right? <laughs> We're hearing a lot of information that's not corroborable. Some of it, yes, and some of it, no. I think that, the, you know, in some ways, you have to step back and say, well, we knew the broad outlines of what happened on that day and within two days afterwards. We knew that former President Trump was publicly attempting and privately attempting to reverse the election, which is, as he was doing it, was a form of undermining the constitutional order. We knew that he did not intervene when his supporters attacked the Capitol. He refused to say anything to tell them to stop. And in fact, he did the opposite. You know, he he continued to tweet that it was all Pence's fault for not doing the right thing, you know, as he saw it. Mm. So a lot of that, you know, in terms of what you could legitimately impeach a president on, that he broke his oath of office, that he violated his oath of office in many serious ways, we knew that. 
immediately. And in fact, you know, most of the Senate thought that, you know, seven Republicans out of 50 voted to convict and about that many more, maybe maybe more than that, said, well, we think he did it, but because of a technicality, we're not going to vote to convict. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we're getting now, to some extent, might be more than that. There's still a question of to what extent did Trump and the White House coordinate the violence on January 6th? We still have only seen hints of that. Um, we yeah. know it was welcome. We know that he was for it. But we don't know, you know, whether there was actual coordination and that's if that was true, that would be something significant that we didn't know back then. But what we know is certainly sufficient for impeachment if he was still in the White House, and it may very well be indictable. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is Mark Meadows and his loyalty. I mean, the presidency isn't really supposed to be a cult of personality. We know that this presidency was a very different kind of one. But why is Mark Meadows continuing to be so loyal? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Part of it is we don't know what Mark Meadows' criminal liability is. There's, there was certainly some talk in the testimony on Tuesday about not just that Trump might be criminally liable for what was happening, but that Meadows and others in the White House might be as well. So if he feels that he's criminally liable, he may feel that not talking is the best course of action for himself. What happens in these things is that as some people start to talk, sometimes the incentives change and others feel like, you know, I'm in trouble, I need to cut a deal, or at least mm-hmm. I need to give my side of it in public. And we'll see if that happens coming out of this week's testimony. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of people having conversations behind closed doors these days. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. got to ask you about the events of Friday and, and the weekend. Roe getting overturned. I mean, we knew it was coming. It was still sort of pretty shocking. Now we have a whole patchwork of laws across the country. We have states going into action. We have courts in different states putting the pause button on. Right. Uh, how does this get sorted out? Does it get sorted out state by state level? I have a very strong answer to this, which is we don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's there's people on both sides that are very certain of themselves. And I don't think that that's warranted. We don't know how this is going to play out state by state. We don't know. We don't know when there's going to be either a larger Democratic majority in unified Democratic government than we have now or Republican unified government at the national level. And if so, you know, how long it'll take for that to happen and then what they'll choose to do in that circumstance. You know, I think that the people who say, oh, this is only going to affect solidly Republican states and it's only going to affect abortion, it won't affect any of the other things that fall under the right to privacy. I think that's silly. It already is starting to affect some of those things. But on the other hand, the people who say, ah, this is a step that is certain to result in rolling back every single privacy right nationally, we don't know that either. Yeah. Um, we don't know how it's going to play out in this year's elections. We don't know how changes to both party coalitions may come out of this that just are not that predictable because individuals and and, and groups of people are going to make decisions about what to do. Exactly. And the <clears> I mean, <throat> first question to ask even is, does it even impact the midterms, whether it be in turnout or in, as you say, new coalitions being formed or even as a agenda item? We don't even know if people will vote on this. That's correct. And most of the time for almost all Supreme Court decisions, I would say, you know, it'll fade from the headlines. It won't. It won't have a major effect. Uh, probably, it'll have a negligible effect at best. This time, I would say we don't know. I could yeah. definitely picture 
in the immediate event, the people who are most engaged in this issue are people who, for the most part, are strong partisans, strong voters, are going to vote the same way they were going to anyway. Could that change? Could the issue start affecting people who normally don't vote, who sometimes vote, who are not solidly partisan voters? It could. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, we, we do know that it's going to make abortion a more salient issue in state and local elections. But whether that means that people will vote on it, well, that's another question altogether. Jonathan Bernstein there. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, do get in touch. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email me at vquinn at Bloomberg.net. And Bloomberg Opinion is also available as a podcast on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.